during this past season, I've noticed things I don't normally notice because I've been preaching on peace. Things that sort of, uh, I guess this always happens when you're preaching something, but when you're a minister of the peace of Jesus Christ during the season of peace, preaching on peace, uh, you start to see things you haven't seen before. And things that normally appear normal uh, feel very ironic. Like, for example, the fact that my wife asked me for an alarm system for Christmas. Which, the irony was not lost on me. Here I am working out all this stuff on peace, and she says to me, the only thing I want for Christmas is a security system for the house. Uh, you know, and it wasn't a bad thing. It was, there's wisdom in all of it, I suppose, but uh, in, it's called Simply Safe, which in processing the deep, profound mystery of peace, I just think nothing is simple. Certainly our peace and safety isn't simple. Um, but it's had me thinking about uh, peace in general. Is peace really obtainable by barricading yourself behind some sort of safe barrier? Is that what God is talking about when, when we talk about peace? Of you, uh, sort of an insulated piece of climbing inside, putting the walls up, putting a fence line out, putting the cameras up, and so that we can almost simulate the sensation of safety when the truth is the world is not. We have been processing for several weeks now this idea of peace. The first week, since Thanksgiving actually, the first week that we spent time on the concept, we dealt with the notion of the fact that peace is a very big concept. It's not simple. It's not small. In fact, the Hebrew word shalom is a very pregnant sort of word. It's full. And out of it can come all sorts of meanings, prosperity, welfare, the hints of friendship come out of the word shalom, rest come out of the word shalom, order. That Sunday we spent time in the creation story because I think in truth, the narrative of scripture begins with a picture of shalom and points to it all the time. When everything is exactly as it should be, when God says something and it happens and it's good, and it requires no adjustment, and God is at rest. That's, that is peace, to be at rest in the perfect divine order of God. And the second week that we came, we returned back to the word, but looking at it a little bit differently, dealing with the notion that there's some aspects of peace we see today uh, that have been accomplished through Christ. It's sort of divine peace of God, and then there's parts of peace that we don't yet enjoy, that we broke into the already and not yet sort of concept of peace. And we reminded ourselves that it's not sufficient for God's people to simply wait for the not yet to be made full because he's made us part of his work. We're agents of the peace of the kingdom of God. So while there certainly are things that are not yet right, 
we're not just supposed to sit and wait for it. We're called into it. That was several weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about the different ways that the way of peace might look. Sometimes we make peace. Sometimes we just keep the peace. Sometimes we have to come to peace. But we saw in Scripture that it's really our sense of relationship with God. If, if we don't have peace with God, none of that's going to work out. Like our ability in this life to reach out and to come to peace or make peace or be at peace with others has everything to do with our relationship with the Lord. That's first, and this is second. Well, being Christmas, and uh, given the fact that he is the Prince of Peace, I'd like to look at three passages this morning from the Christmas story or that surround the Christmas story or that are often read at Christmas. And I want us just a last opportunity to resonate with this concept. You won't always hear peace in each reading. Usually you will. But what the person is describing as they speak or write or sing, I want you to be listening for the nature of peace in the writing. And we'll, we'll think about it from what about this reading has already taken place, what about it has not yet taken place, and, and what do we do in the now? That's sort of our, our flow for these, these readings. And the first one's going to come from uh, the prophet, from the prophet Isaiah in the ninth chapter. And Isaiah was a prophet during the time of the king's of the Jews during when the line of David was on the throne. But Isaiah was speaking when the kings had failed. When the line of the kings of David had failed, that's when Isaiah was called up to speak. And in fact, he's speaking at a very low moment. This reading is coming from a very low moment for Jerusalem and for the king in Jerusalem. He's a weak king, he's a faithless king, and he's a king who's been surrounded by none other than his own kinsfolk. Israel has come, is at war with itself. And his kinsmen, these other tribes in Israel, have made an alliance with other nations, with other gods, and they've come down and raided Jerusalem. Can you imagine a darker time for a king? And this king had no faith. And in Isaiah, it says that when the king heard about the enemy coming upon him, it says he and the people shook like trees in the wind with fear. And it's in that environment that Isaiah is going to say what he says. So as I read, I want you to have in the backdrop the context, the dark time uh, in which these words are being spoken. Here's the words from Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Prince of Peace is spoken into a land where there is no peace. In a land where it's dark, this message of light comes to them. That the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. That's being said in a time when if it wasn't the Assyrians, then it was the Assyrians. And after the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, it was the Persians. Until eventually, it was the Romans. Like the whole time that Isaiah is speaking, and then hundreds of years later, as the word of Isaiah is ministering to the people, God is speaking light into a land with no peace. And God is linking that peace to a man who will come. Christ is our only peace. Where do we see this already done? I think of the phrase of the increase of his kingdom and of peace there will be no end. This, this way that the dominion of Christ has no boundary. And then I think of the nature of his ministry as he walked the earth. Do you know, if, if you, ca- you can categorize the miracles of Christ and very methodically he shows you, the story of the ministry of Christ shows you he had dominion over weather. He had dominion over the spirit world. He had dominion over the human body. He had dominion over our provision. He had dominion over death. And he had dominion over sin. Where does God not have dominion? Do you see the nature of the ministry of Christ? Of the increase of my kingdom and of my peace, there will be no end. It's not simply like temporal. It's not throughout time. It's not simply geographic. It is every way that you can think. I will reign. That has already been done for us. Not yet. What's, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the fullness of time. Scripture tells us that in the end, everything will be placed beneath his feet. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that day, that's when all will be realized. When, in fact, everything will be beneath the foot of Christ. Everything will be bowing at his throne. Until then, what do we do? Well, this is when I'm reminded that peace 
We're not simply safe. What does it mean for a follower of Jesus to express the peace of God? I would say at the very least, it's that when darkness comes, we do not shake like trees in fear. Because a word has been brought to us. Because Christ has come to us. Several years back, the theme verse for Vacation Bible School is a great one. The Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound judgment. Why do we have that? Because we have the peace of God. We're not to be people of fear. If there's something in your life that has the power of fear enough to move you where if you were honest with yourself, you'd say this fear has power over me. I would say pull that string, keep unravel that. And when, if you pull long enough, you will find a place where the peace of God has, has not yet had dominion in your life. Where there's a truth of Christ that you are not believing and there is a lie of the enemy that you're holding on to. Because of the increase of his kingdom and of his peace, there will be no end. Let's look at another reading. This is in uh, Luke chapter one, and all of, the, all of the readings will be on the screen if you don't want to turn the page. Luke chapter one. This is uh, the song of Mary. As I read it, I want you to hear peace described. Now, she's not going to say peace, but I want you to hear peace, the way she describes peace from her perspective, because I think it's exactly what she's describing. Let me read this. This is Luke 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. For he has looked on my humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now leave that scripture up there for a second. This second half of her song is really profound. Some wonder, was Mary maybe 16 years old when this happened? So you look at those words. Do those words sound like what you would expect to come out of the mouth of a 16-year-old peasant girl? The way she's worshiping the Lord with justice? Justice is in her lips. The way she's celebrating how God is going to turn things around. And it's begun with her. 
the song begins with her marveling in the fact that God looked upon her in her lowly estate and raised her up. This is the peace of God. The fact that God has pure and perfect eyes, just eyes, where he sees things that are small and he raises them up. And he sees things that are artificially large and he makes them bow down. She sings that God is going to upset the social order in order that God can set up his peace. That's her song. It's not a lullaby. God is going to right wrongs. He's going to do what man alone is entirely unable to do, which is to treat all people justly. Every time man tries, we get a certain form of social disorder that comes out of it. But with God, it's possible. God sees us as we are. This song to me is perfect. It's perfect equality, not in the way that you and I think. It's divine equality. It, it, every time I read it, it strikes me as God sees in a way we don't see. He's gonna humble the proud and he's gonna raise the humble. He's gonna enrich the poor and he's gonna shatter the myth of wealth for the wealthy. The myth that they're good because they have wealth or the myth that their wealth equals better. God is gonna make, bring them low And the beauty of the Lord is there's even love here that he's gonna bring them low so that they see their poverty and when they see their poverty, they're raised up again in him. Already God has done this for us. What have we seen already? Even in the nature of the story of Christ, the loving justice of God is seen. The fact that God would go to Mary, to a young peasant virgin from Nazareth. It breaks all of the rules of social custom. If he was playing by our rules, he would have gone to a great queen. The great queen of Sheba. If he was playing with our order, but he's upsetting our order. The very fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem is not as it's supposed to be if you ask, if you, if you play by our rules. Jesus should have been born in Jerusalem if he was gonna be born in Palestine at all. It should have been Jerusalem. Bethlehem's five miles away. God barely misses the right answer. And it really shouldn't even be Israel if we're gonna be true about it. It should have been Pick your empire, Persia, Athens, Egypt, Rome. Israel is the epicenter, it's the nothing epicenter around which the massive empires of the ancient Near East have walked and trod. Every one of those people groups has marched through Jerusalem and taken. Israel has never held the microphone for human history until scripture. 
No one ever, no. Caesar did not want to know what Jerusalem thought. Athens doesn't want to know what Jerusalem thought. Persia didn't want to know. And God chooses, God chooses low things and elevates low things up. That is the peace of God. There is, in, uh, in Deuteronomy, there's a really special passage. I'm not gonna preach on tithing again, but it happens to be about tithing. So, but enjoy it, because it's, it's, uh, it's striking. In Deuteronomy 26, this is what it says. It says, when, when each year, when you gather up your tithe and you bring it to the place that God will choose to place his name, you go there and you bring it, you represent it with a basket. You just put in a basket some goods and, and you bring it to the priest and the priest places it on the altar and then you have a responsibility. You publicly have words you're supposed to speak. Like at a wedding, you can imagine the priest would sort of say a few words and then you would repeat them. And this is, this is, these are the words that you would say. You would begin with, my ancestor was a wandering Aramean. That's how it starts. My ancestor was a wandering Aramean. And it goes on to describe the story of your nothingness. The story, every year you would tithe, you would begin a story with, I, we are a nobody people with no reason for joy. And yet look what you've done. My ancestor was a wandering Aramean. And yet, and he sojourned into Egypt where he found a place to live and yet became a slave and was oppressed. Yet you rescued you rescued us, us out of the hand of the Egyptians with terrifying signs and wonders and marvels. And you brought us into this land of milk and honey where things can grow. And that's why I'm here. That's the story. The very fact that the Israelite could farm was a miracle of God because they had never had land. So when the Israelite, when a fruit came out of the ground or fell off a tree, they, since they were called the people of God, they had never had that because they were nomadic. To have land and to pull fruit from the ground and to harvest, God said, every time you do that, every year, remember, you wore a wandering Aramean and I saw you and gave you a name and raised you up because I have eyes of justice. God sees things for what they are. For the low, he raises us up. For the high born, he brings them low so that they can be raised up again. And one day, right, not everything's fulfilled yet, one day he'll judge everyone. Every single person will be judged. And God is not easily impressed. Most of what we work for will be burned in the fire. And God will look for things like faith, like hope, like love. God will look for the two great commandments. How have we loved the Lord and how have we loved our neighbor? What can we do now? Well, if we have the peace of God, we are particularly suited to give others dignity. Particularly suited because God gives us the ability to see them as they are. 
we are particularly suited to say enough. We've had enough, right? Satisfaction, that mysterious concept, is, should be close for the follower of God because we have his peace. Dissatisfaction is the root of so much injustice. Our need for more when we actually have enough. We are particularly suited to hate evil and love people at the same time. And the engine of so much injustice comes from people who don't hate evil and don't like people. One last reading. Luke chapter 2. There was a man named Simeon. I suppose I'll just read it. Here, here's the reading. Let me find it first. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now I have been moved by the nature of Simeon's contentment in this. the way that Simeon comes to peace, he's ready to depart in peace when he, when he sees Jesus. Take me home, Lord, is what he's saying. And I, there's several things I want us to see about Simeon. It, my prayer today would be this Christmas, may we be like Simeon. Because the first thing that you see from Simeon is he has, before he sees Jesus, he has a spirit of holy discontent with the world. He's praying for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. He's, and why is he doing that? Because he's godly. The text says he's a godly man, and he's praying for the consolation of Israel. The, God, the godlier we are, there's a way that we can be of greater peace in this world and less content with it at the same time. Less in need of the comforts of the world, hence our peace, and yet more discontent with the nature of the world. And that's Simeon. Simeon has, you might assume, I think from the text, in his godliness, has for years been seeking God and begging God for the peace of Jerusalem, for the consolation that God's promised. It's, he's the sort of man who would read Isaiah chapter 9 and go to the Lord continually saying, where is it? Where is the increase of your government and peace that would have no end? He's that sort of person who's so discontent with what he sees. 
May we be like that. If simply safe fixes it for you, you have a very low view of peace. I mean, if we're, it's one thing to be cozy on Christmas. I'm all for that. Trust me. But if we're at peace, if we think of our lives and say, I'm at peace, I would, I would suggest that either you have a low view, I mean, I'm at peace in the world, right? I would say you might have a low view of what peace really is, or you have insulated yourself from massive lostness around us. Simeon has not insulated himself and that has made his prayers righteous. And God spoke to him. You'll see my peace before you die. I'll show you my peace before you die. Just wait and see what I'm gonna do. And he does. And he sees the peace. And this is the second thing you you see out of Simeon. Simeon sees Christ, sees this baby who's done nothing. In fact, in my mind, oh, maybe the Lord needs to forgive me for this, but I just imagine, let me see this. Simeon's contentment with Jesus is so much greater than what he's actually receiving. In my mind, I, he, he has a poopy diaper when he's in Simeon's arms. That, that's what I'm saying. Is, is it, like, it, it's not the child that is giving him consolation. It's not this warm fuzzy. It's Simeon has peace seeing what God has done, this little part of what God has done now Simeon has massive peace for. The tiny peace, the tiny piece of peace <laughs> that Simeon experiences in the moment gives him great contentment in what has not yet been done because he sees what God, the little thing that God has already done. Would that we would be like that. That our contentment we would have contentment in what God has not yet done because we would have faith that's filled with the little part that God has already done for us. I feel like Simeon has more peace than many, many people in the world, even maybe even the people who walked with Christ, who saw the miracles of Christ, who felt the ministry of Christ and heard the words of Christ and experienced the Holy Spirit and the coming of the church, all of these things line up. I mean, compared to regular Christian folk, Simeon has hardly seen anything. And yet he's at peace. I think if we are full of faith, if we have the faith of Simeon, then all we need to see is God do a little bit of what he says he's gonna do, and we know he's gonna do it all. Here's the last thought about Simeon. What Simeon beholds in his, when he speaks, what he beholds is way more than what he was praying for or longing for. He's longing for the consolation of Israel and he sings about the Gentiles. He's longing that his tribes, the tribes of Israel might receive their consolation and he ends up singing about the nations of the world. 
It's a sense that God, right, because of his faithfulness, because of his patience, because of his willingness to rejoice, and the little bit that God shows him, and his trust that God will do everything, all of that ends up helping Simeon see God's doing way more, way more than even Simeon probably anticipated. My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Peace is not as simple as some might think. And God does not mean to secure it by insulating us. Rather, we are secured in his peace through faith by trusting that God will do fully what he has started. And his son his son is our gift. His son has done, Jesus has done the work Here's a true statement. Christ has died for the sins of all people. All of mankind can find forgiveness by turning to Christ. All of mankind has access to the peace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That has already been done for us. And he intends to do much more than that. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you on Christmas Day and we ask you that we might be as Simeon, like Simeon. Holy enough now to pray and see things as they are. To bring what's wrong in this world to you because you're just and because you're bringing light into darkness and because the increase of your kingdom has no end. Lord, make us faithful enough to that when we see a little bit of what we're doing you're doing we have the full sure faith that you'll finish it and lord we invite you to show us that you're doing more than even we can imagine than we can ask or imagine that 4 weeks of meditating on peace barely gets us to what you think when you think of the word. We ask, Lord, uh, on this Christmas day that you would make uh, your followers across the earth worshiping today ambassadors of peace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.